Welcome to Rational Radio. I'm Alec Hogg, and as you can hear from the signature tune, it's a COVID-19 special edition of Rational Radio today. We've got a full show, so we're going to get straight into it with our regular man on the markets, David Shapiro. The inquiries we're getting at the moment are intense. A lot of people phoning, but there's no panic. Um, I think the panic is over, or well, the panic happened a long time ago. People are just asking for updates, what's happening in the world. And also, I think there are more people looking to come in the market, looking for opportunities, than to get out. And that's a very important sign. I'm not calling by no means the bottom of the market. But, I'm, but the reaction of people now suggests that perhaps we've seen the panic over and um, it could go on for a bit of time before we start to see the turnaround. Remember, markets are always forward-looking. So very interesting observation. But even the RAND, I think we've seen the worst in the RAND. Uh, it's now 1780, so it's picking up from where it was and so so on. What I haven't got is a grip on the bond market yet. Um, I know that there was an initial shock there. The market, you know, yields did kick up, but I'm not sure where they are at the moment. I'm still trying to find out what's happening in the bond market. But 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 I'm pleasantly surprised. Well, that's uh, we're going to talk in a little more detail later on, Dave. Uh, we've got uh, we're going to be also getting that forward-looking thought because joining us at about quarter past is Alain Pedel, who's the deputy CEO of Ping'an Health in China. He's the man that Discovery has sent there. But also with us today is Gigi Alcock. Gigi, lovely to have you on the show. Uh, we've got a piece uh, on Biz News today that you wrote, talking about the difference between the Kasi economy and the info uh, informal economy, and in fact, how are they being impacted by COVID-19? Hi, Alec. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the misconception is that the informal economy is just in the township, but uh, a large proportion of it is in the kind of inner cities and taxi ranks and stuff like that. And so a lot of the guys who are taking real um, strain um, from this have been the, the, the informal sector within the kind of cities. Um, I mean, even going as far as the taxis, I spoke to a friend who's in the, who owns taxis in Soweto this morning, and uh, the taxis that do the local business that is in essence around the, within the township are, are, are kind of struggling, but they're still operating. Of course, all the guys who are going into the inner cities or to the the urban taxi ranks are practically, um, you know, have lost all their business. So, um, and, and so a lot of the township-based businesses are still doing not okay, but are still doing business. Um, and, and um, you know, they kind of, because they're local, the spaza shops, for an example, are, are within walking distance, and so they're providing quite a vital part in terms of grocery products and stuff um, close to people's homes. Surely one of the big concerns is that when people get angry, uh, when they don't have money, uh, those spaza shops and spazarettes, as you call them, many of which are uh, are run by Somalis or foreigners, uh, do become under threat. We've seen it before uh, where there's been looting, etc. Is this something that that uh, people are mindful of? Yeah, so we've been monitoring that uh, with a, a colleague of mine, Ibrahim, who's a Somali South African. Um, and what we've seen is about 80% of the spazarets, the more supermarket-type spazas, are open. Um, but what they've done is they're dropping their stock levels um, quite um, dramatically mm. because um, they're afraid that uh, you know, when people run out of money or, or dramas, they'll be the first target in terms of looting for food and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of them are then also opening at certain times. So they'll open for two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon. Um, 
and then kind of closed when, um, you know, in the, in the middle of the day. So the operating hours are, are limited. So, I mean, I think on, on the one hand, I mean, you know, the, the drama has been that the Minister of Small Business and others haven't actually clarified, you know, who is allowed to operate. They've said things like only South African spas owners, et cetera, which is, is sad because these spas are actually supplying, you know, good quality branded food products um, right within people's uh, streets. So someone doesn't have to take a taxi and incur that cost, number one. Number two, they don't have to take a taxi and be exposed more. You know, so I think that they actually need more support. Mm. That is a rather strange thing for a minister to say in a country which is, um, well, it's already been a hotbed of xenophobia in the past. Is that confirmed or, or uh, did, you, did you actually hear that? Apparently it was fake news and it was withdrawn. So, um, but I mean, the point is, is that's the word on the street. So the police, for instance, um, in Soshangobe, north of uh, Pretoria, were closing spazarets and saying to them if they weren't, um, South African, they couldn't operate. Um, so those are anecdotal stories of what's happened. I don't know how widespread it is, but there have been incidents of it. Um, so the rumor is out there, whether it's fake news or, or real, I, I wouldn't know. But I think uh, either way, it would need some sort of clarity, official clarity to be shared. So one would hope then that people in Pretoria are watching this carefully, because uh, I guess the other point, and you've, you've spoken about this a lot, is there's a 20 billion rand industry with backyard rentals. Now, that's fine for the moment because people are being paid, but I guess if the lockdown continues and those people don't get the money that uh, because they're not at work, that could turn nasty. Yeah, so, look, I mean, uh, that goes across the, the entire spectrum. I mean, I think, you know, there's huge amounts of um, money generated by that informal economy that's sustaining livelihoods, whether it's the backroom rental or hawkers and taxiing selling vegetables and so on. And the, the, the thing is, is that what are the ripple effects of not earning that money? I mean, both the backroom rentals and the advantage of the backroom rentals is still there when the kind of money run, you know, when the lockdown ends and money starts coming back in. But uh, the biggest problem is more, I guess, people like the hawkers who are selling potatoes and tomatoes and stuff. Um, you know, who run out of money, they don't have then the cash to to purchase new um, milk and, and so on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the um, the repercussions are very much on that kind of sector in the sense that people don't have the cash flow. And then there's a massive ecosystem, whether it's the backroom rental or the local water outlet and so on, that's impacted um, in terms of the money that's rotating within that economy. G.G. Alcock, uh, the oh. author of a number of books on the spot on the Cosinomics, uh, as he calls it. David, it does make a, a difference. And we're going to be talking to G.G. hopefully throughout this uh, every wow. week just to get a, an understanding of, of how things are going. It, it is a bit of a tinderbox. It, and how it is. And I think we all worry about that, particularly uh, with the downgrade and more people in the formal sector being laid off. You know, what the consequences of that are going to be. It's just, I, I was looking at transaction capital. You know, we know transactional capital finance is a taxi industry and is associated with that. And it's quite incredible that, um, you know, during the year, year to date, this is a share which has been so well followed and so well supported. It's actually down about 40% um, since year to date, you know, since the 1st of January, simply on worries about how the taxi industry is going to be 
uh, affected by this lockdown and by what's happening. So it's the only gauge we have um, that gives you an idea of how people feel about, uh, um, you know, what Gigi was talking about. So, you know, and again, it's down about 7.5% today. Elaine Peddle, who's the Deputy CEO of Pingan Health, joins us now from China. Mm. Um, Elaine, we uh, were just talking about issues here in the South African economy where the lockdown has just started. But being based in China, you've seen this happening for quite some time now. Uh, when, when did you first uh, at Pingan get, get an understanding of what was going on uh, with COVID-19? So um, we started seeing uh, signs pretty much in the third last week of January. I remember I actually left the office on January 21 uh, in order to uh, sort of join the Chinese New Year celebration. And that was about the date. We were starting to get masks issued at the time. And probably about three days later, uh, everything went into lockdown in Wuhan and other places. Uh, which was right in the middle of the Chinese New Year, which is a, a massive event, as you may or may not know, um, a week-long holiday where Chinese people traditionally ch- travel across the country to return to their um, hometowns. And, and whereabouts exactly are you based? So I'm based in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I've been here for about four and a half years. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, to your point, the COVID-19 situation started around Jan 20. But what's quite interesting, and I'm sure many of your, your listeners might be interested to know, but on February 10, we started bringing people back into the office. So all in all, it was about a three-and-a-half-week three lockdown. And that, in fact, took about five weeks to get things back to a state of some normality. Are you there now, Alain? Yes, yes. So, to give you a sense of I left South Africa, I left back to China on February, about February the 15th, um, and I've been in the office since. Uh, my family returned about two weeks ago, so they're just about to come out of quarantine. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that I, I really need to say, speaking to everyone who's, um, who's going through this and some of the other places, is there's definitely, definitely light at the other side of the tunnel. <laughs> um, you know, things are definitely not back to normal in Shanghai, but uh, it's, it's, it's functioning. Society is functioning again. <laughs> um, uh, you're still doing temperature checks into the building. People are all wearing masks. And you still have to show your QR code as you go into restaurants or into public transport to prove that you've been in Shanghai for 14 days. Uh, but we're interacting again. <laughs> Alain, you're there as the deputy CEO of, of what's a massive business now that uh, Discovery owns 25% of, but you obviously are South African, yeah. as we can hear from your accent. Uh, do you think that, that, that the Chinese, uh, uh, the way the Chinese have handled it uh, could be applicable in South Africa? I know we're trying, but, but can we do the same thing here? Um, look, uh, you know, whenever we talk on this side... We just lost him now as well. <laughs> oh dear. David, but isn't it fascinating to actually hear the, yeah. uh, the insights yeah. that you get from, uh, from that side? I'll, I'll uh, try Elaine again and perhaps we have more luck That's, this time. Yeah, Shanghai yeah. is a long way away. <laughs> but he said, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel and it's, I think it's so good to hear someone who's gone through it, whether we can apply the same kind of disciplines here um, is, is debatable. Um, if we can, in, are you there? Okay. Yeah, if, it's, if we can enforce it. Mm? Mm-hmm. 
understand it. Alain, sorry, man, we, we lost you. It appears as though the problem is, uh, is, is on the deep connection. But you were, you were just talking about getting whether we can apply it in South Africa the way that it's been applied in China. Yeah, the home quarantine, the tracking, tracing, the shutdowns, I think are absolutely replicable. I think, um, you know, some of the things the Chinese have done spectacularly well, I would say, happen right down at the local organizing level, where sort of uh, right down at the suburb level, we've got um, officials and volunteers monitoring uh, sections of suburb by section of suburb, where they're monitoring people coming in and out. And that's, I think, a very important step by the time South Africa moves into the stage of people moving around again. So some form of sort of controlled reintegration. And yeah, I hope that that technique is, is applicable elsewhere. Um, but the, the organizing capabilities of the Chinese are, are truly, I mean, they've been astonishing. Um, the other things that they've done, which I think have been really interesting, is that they've involved um, private companies in a way which um, I think you know many other countries can aspire to. Uh, but for example, we've been very engaged in helping coordinate um, inside the Pingang Group uh, the purchases of local produce from distressed communities and uh, sending those as kind of food supplies to Wuhan. So what you do is, as a private company, you're able to sort of support the efforts of government uh, at, at, on both sides of the, the, the financial equation, you know, helping stimulate the demand um, and keeping... Um, you know, keeping these rural communities sort of in business and at the same time obviously addressing the challenges that they're facing Wuhan when a city of over 10 million people goes into lockdown. Sorry, Alain, listening to the um, results presentation, the interim results presentation, where there was a question about Pingan's exposure to the to COVID-19. Of course, at that stage, it hadn't really hit the rest of the world. And the response was that the government is actually picking up the tab. How does that work? Well, um, so maybe just a second on our business. Um, China has a social health insurance program, uh, which covers basically 99% of the citizens. So every Chinese person has access to healthcare, um, and most people make use of it. Certainly the idea is that the best doctors are in the AAA hospitals, which are all government run. And uh, you've got the advantage of being able to get reasonably good care um, at a pretty good price. But there is a downside. There's long waiting times. The hospitals aren't necessarily the most pleasant environments for people to be in. And so what we provide as cover is effectively a form of top-up. Um, and so in the context of our business, the government has taken the full responsibility of paying for essential healthcare, and all treatment related to COVID-19 will be covered by the social health insurance program. What we can do as an insurance company is that we can help facilitate upfront funds for individuals who don't have money at the point they go to the hospital and they need to pay um, some form of admission fee, which they can still get back from the government, but they may not have the cash flow, so we help them with that. Um, there are certain forms of after-diagnostic treatment where you may need to go back for, for visits which may not be fully covered by the government. Um, we also provide maybe very thin levels of, of, of death benefits for some of our customers. That's not standard in our policy. 
but by and large, it's the government system that, that funds treatment. Hmm. How is the progress going from the Chinese scientist's perspective on, on finding uh, cures or vaccines or, or at least some kind of assistance uh, to fighting COVID-19 on a clinical basis? Yeah, so I'm not a, I'm not a clinical expert. Uh, and certainly it's tricky to keep up to date with uh, all the research that's being done. But there are several tests uh, being conducted uh, often with very large samples, working, you know, very hard at finding, um, finding some form of, of vaccine or immunization. There have been no, um, there have been no declarations of success as yet. The language we see is promising trials. Um, and certainly there is quite a lot in the news about work, you know, progressing rapidly. Uh, but certainly nothing that, that makes me think we're on the cusp of success. <laughs> and if you take the level of commercial activity, you, you've been back at the office, as you said, and other colleagues as well, from Shanghai being pre-COVID-19 uh, a level of 100, where would it be right now? I would say a city like Shanghai is probably at around 80 or so. Uh, I think there are other more industrial cities um, where I think things are um, certainly not at that level. So certainly heavy heavy manufacturing. There's all kinds of issues. So there's still some transport restrictions across the country. There's still people who are still in their hometowns that may find it difficult to get back to the factories. And the factories themselves, you know, went through a period of being unable to produce anything and are now going through a period of uncertain demand. <laughs> so, um, so certainly the challenge is there. Uh, in other industries, and I think specifically the, the restaurants uh, and services environment, um, small businesses that do hairdressing and these kinds of things, I think those types of businesses are still, still finding things a bit tough. Things that cannot be transacted online are having the toughest time. The, the online businesses have have gone through an enormous boom phase. Uh, you, you know, I'm not sure how aware um, of this you are, but the Chinese economy is extraordinarily online. Um, and you know, in a city like Shanghai, um, you know, my sort of 20 to 30 year old staff would probably pretty much only transact online. They don't have a credit card. They never use cash. Uh, they buy everything through their phones, um, and what this, and so the infrastructure is set up around that, um, and what this, this epidemic has done and what the shutdown, shutdown has done has moved some of the, sort of the laggards onto these online systems as well. Alain, um, could you give us a time span? Because obviously mm-hmm. sitting where we are in South Africa, we're now trying to work out mm-hmm. how long it will be before mm-hmm. we can get to the place that you're at now in China. I know, I've thought about that often. So as I said, so January 20, January 21 was when we first started seeing um, masks being issued. Lockdown happened about January the 23rd, and then February the 10th, certain businesses started going back to work. So that's three weeks. It seemed like a very long time. Uh, We started going back to the office where we had 20% of our staff in the office on a given day. So everyone basically worked in one day a week. 
and then we up that week by week, 20, 40, 60, etc. Um, so that's another five weeks after that. Um, so I'd say after eight weeks, we're at a point where people were in the office, but meetings were heavily restricted. Everyone wears masks, the temperature scanned on the way in and the way out, and it's taken another, I'd say another three or four weeks to get to a point where it feels somewhat normal. But even today, if we have a meeting, uh, people will, will be wearing masks as a general rule and precaution. Uh, perhaps not sitting too close to one another. Um, generally speaking, most business travel is off. Um, although it's also started to come back to life maybe this week. Mm-hmm. So our three-week lockdown, if we put it, if we overlay that to the Chinese experience, would then take mm-hmm. us to mid-April. Uh, thereafter, it's still going to take maybe eight weeks to get to the point that you're at now. Yeah, I think so. Um, and that's, of course, making some heroic assumptions around all the other variables. <laughs> um, uh, you know, how comprehensive the shutdown being implemented, and then also the way in which the controls and the kind of human behavior plays out in the period after that. Um, uh, so it, it's, I, I think it's, it's difficult to map these experiences one place to another uh, directly. The Chinese, I think, my Chinese colleagues would certainly kind of applaud the decisions being taken in South Africa at the moment. Uh, and in truth, um, you know, there are many of my Chinese colleagues who are absolutely terrified um, that other parts of the world just didn't pay enough attention um, early on in the, in the epidemic. Elaine Peddle is the Deputy CEO of Pingan. Well, there you go, David. You've got it from the horse's mouth now, exactly mm, what, mm. The, what, what the likely uh, direction is for South Africa. Yeah, you know, you know what, what's interesting is that for us, it seems like such a long time. And yet, when you reflect back, you know, you said, oh, well, on January, you know, January 20 by February 10, uh, we're already turning back. That was only a couple of weeks. But each day yeah, seems like a year for us. But um, I, th- I think the bright side is it's going to pass. You know what I mean? And it'll, be, it'll pass within a couple of months, uh, not years. And, and I think that's the positive thing that, that I'm getting out of him. We do need the discipline. And that's, that's when he said he can't really map this out, you know, how are we going to respond. And I think that's, that's, we've got to maintain that kind of discipline for this to go. But um, encouraging. Yeah, I, I think he's also uh, far too polite uh, in saying other countries, his Chinese <laughs> friends, are, the way things are going in the U.S., David, is just, know, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? The way that's, that's well, well, New York, because, of, you know, particularly New York, where everybody's so close uh, on top of each other. You know, my daughter's there, and we talk to her every day. Um, they're taking it in their stride. It's harder. You know, we're as hardest as on teenagers, on kids. They are homeschooling at the moment. They're getting uh, lessons, but I mean, for a ten year, for a twelve-year-old, thirteen-year-old, it's, it's 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 particularly demanding because I don't think they've got the same sitting power, you know, that we have, or the same patience that we have. But uh, they have to do it. There. You know, that's 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 where it can uh, explode. They have opened up new hospitals there, so the beds, you know, there are plenty of beds, and they made a lot of provision. But I mean. Um, it's 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 still very scary in the big cities. 
And as far mm. as uh, just getting back to your area of focus, the markets here in South Africa are concerned, we've seen the RAND take another mm. tumble this morning, um, but you say that it's it started to improve a bit. The, the, the whole Moody's decision was, surely that was baked in already. Uh, to a large extent. You know, the, the RAND is just as we talk 1780. And, um, yeah, it's against the pound, it's 22 euro, 1970 odd and that, but it's off its worst levels. And, um, you know, even looking at the stock market, it's, it's, we haven't got the sell off that we had anticipated. Remember, we had some, we had some good days last week. So my own view is that, that, that things will stabilize from now on. I'm talking about the market. Uh, Alec, I'm looking at the futures in um, in the U.S. as well. So there's no sell-off there either. You know, those big sell-offs, the 4 or 5% that we've seen, I think those are something uh, from the past, even against the worst news, this Fauci uh, coming out, and I can't remember his first name, who's, and nor do I, nor do I remember the position he holds, but uh, he, he, he is in a position of authority when it comes to the virus. But he said, yes, we can expect 200,000 deaths, meaning, you know, that's it. And the markets kind of said, okay, well, we can accept that. You know, if that's the worst, it's already baked into the market already. So I think, I think all I'm trying to say is I'm not looking at the human factor from a financial point of view. I think that uh, we've probably passed that shock value. You know, we've still got Alain on the line. I'd just like to mm. bring him in again quickly. Alain, do you think that the rest of the world is underestimating the impact, uh, given what the financial markets are doing? Uh, this is a tough one to call. I think it's, it's, it's how, how quickly can everyone get back to work is the million-dollar question. Um, and then I think we'll see where the markets move from there. Uh, at the moment, I think there's a big collective holding of breath. Well, as we just heard from China, the public-private partnerships are working very well in helping China to get over its uh, challenge or war against COVID-19. In South Africa, we're seeing something very similar, and leading the way is First Rand, whose Chief Operating Officer, Mary Villacazi, joins us now. Amazing uh, 100 million Rand that you've dedicated, you've set aside for the SA pandemic intervention and relief effort. Mary, was there a lot of debate to get this through uh, at a group level? Good morning, Alec, and thank you very much for inviting us onto your show. Um, the 100 million was raised in, um, in, in consultation and collaboration with our foundations, the two first run foundations, as well as our client facing brands, um, F&B, uh, well known for your how can you, how can I help you? Tagline. I think they have showed up as well as the RMB and the West Bank teams. So the, I mean, I think you would know that First Rent is known for the philosophy of owner management where employees are fully empowered to make a real contribution and they are accountable. And you see that really in the high levels of commitment that we've seen in the last two weeks where people have worked tirelessly to make sure that, you know, they're still delivering the best results for customers, society, shareholders and each other. So basically, the first trend um, SPY initiative was was born and, um, and and really initiated by staff who wanted to make sure that, in addition to what we are doing for customers, that I think we are 
we are responding to the social challenges that we know are going the health system is going to face um and 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 and, and other societal impacts that are going to come down the line so yeah so it really wasn't difficult i think to get the committed team of people that are working on the initiative as well as our foundations and FNB, US Bank and, and RMB to put together the 100 million that they've pledged to date. And the objective is that you're going to support where it's needed at, uh, at, in the medical side, in other words. That's correct, um, Alec. And we, so we started with the SPY initiative two weeks ago. So this was before um, the president announced the lockdown and um, and you know the solidarity response um, fund that 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 um, he alluded to in the speech, and we had already been organising um, with with the intention of leveraging our client relationships, um, our committed staff, um, and some of the networks that we have in the various industries. We are, we are already just um, organising ourselves to be able to support government and its partners in mitigating the impact of the COVID-19 crisis um, rapidly and at scale, I suppose, because we know that we, can, we are able to move quite fast. I mean, we leverage our payment systems, we leverage our governance system forums that are already in place, and we know we can move quite quickly. So even when the president announced that, okay, there's a, you know, the solidarity response um, effort, what we did is we reached out to the Solidarity Fund and, and BUSA, and we said, look, we already had, I think, set up Spire to be able to just respond um, quite quickly to the challenges. And we would basically like to make sure that they see this as a pledge to the Solidarity National Effort. So, yeah, so the, I think our, our, our key focus is really just being able to move um, quite quickly. And our team has been quite agile um, and, and just really being able to bring scale rather quickly. So. You know, we welcome all everybody else to come on board and, and support the way that's necessary. I think we are there to support solidarity as well. Um, but, you know, I think we can see by the traction that we've gained really in the last week in what we have enabled, um, you know, um, to, be, to be availed to the South African public health system. Yeah, and today's a big day because your testing kits arrive, uh, 100,000 of them. Correct. And um, these testing kits were ordered by... By Right to Care. So Right to Care is a non-profit organization which is part of the um, the VIRTS consortiums. And these academics actually had ordered 10,000 kids by themselves. So these, these kids, they, you know, they believed that they would make a big impact in South Africa. They are currently being used um, in Spain and in Germany. Um, sorry, in France and in Germany. And they funded the initial 10,000 kits for testing really out of their own reserves. I think it sh- shows you the level of commitment, I think, that everybody is, 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 is bringing to the table. So they then actually ordered 100,000 kits um, at risk. So that's about $1.5 million, you know, with the intent that, okay, a funder is going to come along. And when we when we got to know about it, and also just got to appreciate the economics, because it's a lot more economical with the tests that they have, and they're quite quick as well. Um, we were interested, and we came on board. I think to enable the um, the arrival of the hundred thousand kits. So, yeah, we, we're hoping that the authorities will vet them, and and I think authorize them as um, as good tests that can be deployed wider. And, and yeah, and hopefully we will be able to partner with them going forward. And we also hope other donors will, will come forward and also just support them as well. Mary, 100,000 kits, that suggests there are going to be a lot of people 
who are going to need testing. And we know at the moment we're only sitting at about 2,000 confirmed cases. What, are your, what does your modeling tell you so that you would make that kind of a commitment? Eh? 20 million rand, it's, it's, it's not small change. No, it's not small change, um, um, Alec, Alec. And and I guess the numbers change all the time. As as as, as soon as the numbers are, as soon as we've got more confirmed cases. But uh, but Alec, we think that um, you know that 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 at, that that at the peak. I mean, I suppose we'll see the peak of 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 testing sometime towards the end of April. Okay, so we think that there'll be um, there'll be about. 100,000 kits that we probably need in South Africa. I think as people have left Gauteng, we heard last last week, and they go to various provinces, you know, we, we, we think in a, in a few weeks, in about three weeks, we'll start to get to the peak of a lot of people requiring testing, provided, I guess, that the lockdown, um, you know, that, that, that what we need to do during the lockdown period is also observed. So, yeah, so we think peak time is, is, is towards the end of April. So that's 20 million of the 100 million. Where's the other 80 million going to be going? Okay, so um, as of last night, um, we, um, as with, with working with the Solidarity Fund, we've done two things, or we've, 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 we've agreed on doing two things. So one, we've agreed to providing them a, a, you know, a working capital facility to enable Solidarity to access um, PPE. So that's um, protective... Um, personal equipment for the for the for the for the frontline staff. So we will provide the working capital facility, and a portion of for the facility will also be at risk. So this is the money that will be used to get, um, you know, um, equipment for the for the for the frontline staff, and I think masks in particular. So there's an imminent order of about five million masks that are coming, um, and you know that's about a 25 million commitment from our side. So. We think that's going to make a big difference because one of the things that we continue to hear is anxiety by medical professionals, you know, who don't have masks. And, and I guess that's like really a basic because there's far more that they need. Hence, we have um, availed, um, you know, I think that the, the, the working capital facility of 100 for solidarity to place orders and get going. I mean, that's probably just in the normal portion of then in the normal part of how we would provide funding solutions but we prepare to take it and to be at risk for a portion of that facility Mm. so yeah so so it's testing kits and i think it's masks so we're prioritizing you know i think getting the ppe streams going and then the next um the next um work stream as well that we'll be looking at is ventilators so here, I guess we you, you think you know the numbers around the ventilators that we have in in you know in the various ICU units around around the country, and those numbers range anything from three thousand to five thousand, depending on whether you're talking about whether the ventilators are in a good working condition or not. So we've done also quite a bit of work in this space, and 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 we've also come to appreciate that before people go to ICU, you know, there's a lot of other assisted breathing. Um, breathing equipment that they can access okay so you know so from when you go into the ambulance and they help you with um, a form of ventilator or people that walk around with with oxygen so all those um all those um all that equipment is actually quite necessary to help people with the breathing before they deteriorate and get to the part where they need to be in icu for ventilators so we are working on sourcing, you know, some of that equipment, you know, because we believe that um, through some of our networks that there is some, you know, some, some equipment that we can get. So that we think will play a huge role. 
um, and we'll know as over the course of the week um, where we stand with that. How, how many of those respirators or uh, or ventilators are you going to be ordering? Again, I'm trying to get a sense of how big this sense thing could this. be. So, look, Alec, when I asked the question, and when we, I think we, we, we had a very informative session on Saturday, because now bankers are getting to also learn about how the health industry works, how government procurement works, um, and, and then the treatment as well. Um, my understanding is that in the country, there are about 50 of those portable ventilators, so of those mobile units. We've got about 50. And I think the work that we are doing to understand whether we, you know, whether if we get these orders, they will be suitable and they'll be approved by the authorities, we're looking at a number of 200 of those units. Right. So that's what's currently in it. So, you know, so it, 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 if the authorities are comfortable with it, we are happy that that will bring about, you know, that, that already, you know, I think brings about significant scale in terms of these units that then are accessible. So those would be units that presumably would be mobile, could go out to where people are, uh, and when, when they get brought in from the ambulance, uh, it, it would it would maybe give them that, that golden hour that the medical people talk about. Correct, or a, or a couple of days actually mm. before before they need ventilators, which we know that we have a shortage of. Right in the beginning of our conversation, you said the hundred million so far. <laughs> Are you expecting that there will be more money that First Rand will be allocating to fight COVID nineteen? Actually, that's a good question, Alec, because actually what we would like to have is, um, I mean, I think and we have also received requests from, you know, from um, other companies that, 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 that we work with closely um, and other foundations as well who I think have looked at what we are doing and, and I think are particularly interested in how we're able to scale and move quickly. Um, who would like to contribute. So, you know, I think we are very clear that this is not in competition to any of the other initiatives. So we welcome people to support if they think, you know, what we are doing is adding value. So we've got a few of those people that have reached out to us, a few of those organizations that have reached out to us that that, that we welcome. You know, our foundations have been doing very solid work over the last 20 years. I think that was really recently released the report on just report to society, um, giving a feedback of what the first rent foundations have enabled. So I think if there's a need, you know, I think if, if we if we're coming across um, places where there's no one who is um, availing resources and we have probably run out of a hundred million, I'm sure we will be able to make a request to the various partners, you know, to to come on board. So, yeah, so at this point in time, there's no um, further commitments that we have. But I think one, if we have deployed um, the funds that we currently have in a way that our partners are, are very comfortable um, and, 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 you know, some of the other corporates and, 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 fund, and funds that foundations that we are reaching out to come to the party, I, I'm quite sure that we, you know, we can, we, we, we can um, scale this up. So welcome now to uh, Philip Jeremont, who's a partner at ENS. Uh, I see the uh, communication that ENS sends out often, and I read through it, Philip, and there's always something interesting there. But particularly interesting was the piece that you wrote in it this past week about rentals. Uh, Many business owners are wondering whether they have to still pay rent because the government has stopped them from using the premises. 
or 21 days. In, uh, in the lockdown of 21 days, uh, you have to stay at home. So what's the legal position on this? Yeah, thank you very much, Alec. And uh, maybe to before answering your question, our, our firm has really received a, a number of inquiries uh, from corporate clients, both um, uh, local clients but also overseas clients, which lease business premises here in South Africa. And they've asked us to investigate whether, as you mentioned now, uh, they would be entitled to suspend uh, the payment of rental um, during the lockdown period. In Germany, for instance, you may have heard uh, large groups such as Adidas, for instance, have suspended payments uh, of rental for the duration in respect of the stores which they rent for the duration of their lockdown period. Other companies have done so as well in Europe, and we've been asked uh, by both international and local clients whether we could investigate um, this point and see whether in South Africa as well um, uh, there is a possibility for tenants to suspend payments of rental during the lockdown period. We've considered this, and our view is that it should be uh, possible in not all, but in certain instances. Okay, that's interesting. So for people who are paying rent at the moment or will have been sent their invoices, do they just not pay them? Uh, and, and what are the instances where, by law, they won't have to pay? So this would really depend uh, on what the agreement says, but perhaps to give you some context and to explain how we've come to this conclusion, um, just a few, few words about lease agreements. As you would know, a lease agreement is an agreement entered into between two parties. Uh, on the one hand, you've got the landlord, which is the owner of the property, and on the other hand, you've got the tenant, which wants to lease the property. And without wanting to get too technical, um, both parties have got certain fundamental obligations uh, in terms of the agreement. The main obligation of the, uh, the landlord is to uh, make available the property to the tenant and to ensure that during the lease period, the entire lease period, the tenant has the undisturbed use and enjoyment of the property. And, of course, the main obligation of the tenant is to pay rent. Now, in terms of the lockdown regulations, um, a number of businesses or stores have to remain uh, closed and for the duration of that period. And this means that the landlords, if the uh, business uh, premises uh, are, are, are leased, the landlords of such stores or premises have a legal impossibility to perform their main obligation under the contract, which is to ensure that the tenant has the undisturbed um, use and enjoyment of the property. So this is a legal impossibility. They're not allowed to make the premises available. Um, and this would constitute in our law a case of force majeure or supervening impossibility. Mm -hmm. And what happens in, in such cases is that when the performance of the contractual obligations becomes impossible, um, as is the case here, the landlord cannot make the premises um, or cannot ensure, rather, that the premises, that the tenant can uh, uh, enjoy and, and use the premises in an undisturbed manner, um, the landlord 
because it's a case of force majeure or supervening impossibility, would be uh, relieved from its obligation for the duration of the uh, impossibility. That would be the duration of the lockdown period. And the other party to the contract, which would be the uh, tenant here, uh, is likewise relieved of performing its reciprocal or corresponding obligation, which would be the payment of rent. So that's the, the principle as it applies under South African law generally. The courts, our courts have also applied this principle to cases uh, uh, where, uh, to, to lease agreements um, and have uh, in, in, in different cases held that uh, uh, the, the tenant which doesn't have the enjoyment of the property can either claim total or partial remission of rent um, uh, during the period where they cannot use and enjoy their property. Um, this has also been confirmed by the uh, Court of Appeal in a matter where the Court of Appeal um, even specifically mentioned that the intervention of a sovereign power whereby whether by legislation or by executive action, and here the regulations, the lockdown regulations which have been published would be uh, considered as an executive action, uh, that that would, have, um, uh, would be considered to be a case of force majeure or supervening impossibility. So in those circumstances, um, yeah, tenants whose shops or businesses have to remain closed during the lockdown period would in principle and uh, underline in principle, be released from the obligation to pay rent, either totally or partially, depending on whether they are totally or partially deprived of the enjoyment of the premises. Hmm. Well, there's a, there's a good legal background in the, in the practical world. What happens? Hmm. Do you just not pay your rent at the end of the month when you get sent the bill as a business so, owner? So practically, and I hope I wasn't too long, but I thought the background was uh, very important. important. <laughs> um, practically, uh, what we would recommend really is for the uh, for the tenants to approach the landlords to explain uh, the situation from their perspective, also to have a look, obviously, what the agreement states, uh, states because there could be provisions in the agreement which would differ uh, from the principles I've just described, or which would derogate from them. Um, and uh, try to find, um, if I could say, an amicable or, or an arrangement with a landlord, which would hopefully be to the satisfaction of both parties. And um, I, would, I wouldn't just recommend for the tenant to stop paying without first notifying and or discussing uh, with the landlord. And hopefully they will have a landlord which will also understand the position. Well, fascinating insights there from uh, uh, Philip Jeremont of ENS, putting the law on the table and exactly what the situation is if you are a tenant, um, which many business owners are, and you haven't got use of your property, well, it's force majeure. It'll be interesting to see how the landlords react to all of this, but I guess the law is pretty clear on it. Brendan Mullen joins us now. He's from Setcher Capital, a impact investing firm. And your biggest business, uh, Brendan, is a company called Stoffelberg Biltong, your biggest operating business. Now, this is it's an interesting situation because we've heard before in the program today about the township economy and the informal economy and how they've been hit by the lockdown. But uh, in, in, I guess, more formal businesses, uh, but still small businesses, 
the impact here has also been pretty difficult, and it's, it's primarily on working capital. Just take us through what's been going on at, at Stoffelberg. Sure, of course. And thank you so much, Alec, for, for including me on this call. Um, as you mentioned, Setra Capital invests in small and medium enterprises, right? Uh, small but growing businesses. And in, in this environment, the fact that these local businesses that, you know, Stoffelberg makes meat, you know, um, you know, Rush Nutrition makes energy bars, they're more important than ever based on uh, the local supply chain. Uh, but the issue, uh, you know, that you're addressing there is uh, with the informal economy is has actually parallels with, with the companies that we're seeing in the SME market. And, and I think it's actually worth taking a step back. Uh, you know, I was, worked at a hedge fund in, in 2009, you know, the, the, the last kind of great financial crisis. And I think borrowing from that, you know, that the term generals always fight the last war, right? The last war was top down. It was Wall Street and how it affected Main Street. And what I haven't heard a lot of people talk about is that, that this war is actually bottom up and it starts with Main Street. And with Main Street, what you need is not necessarily – uh, you know, big government injections of cash, it's actually, you know, that's crucial, but it's not sufficient. What you need help with is that working capital. If you're going to stay working, um, as Stauffenberg Biltong is, you know, they can shut down some fixed costs. They've closed some of the smaller retail shops, but if you want to still make this, this kind of fast moving uh, consumer product, you need that working capital. And if customers are, are, are not paying or, you know, lines of credit aren't extended, it gets stuck in the system. And, and that is calamitous for, you know, the 75,000 SMEs that are 60% of the South African labor force. That's, you know, almost a half of the GDP. And I, I, you know, that's what we want to focus on today. There's some, some great ideas in place, but what's crucial in this is, is that this is, this is different than 2009. This has to be, you know, lines of credit extended very quickly to keep that working capital, keep the economy moving. Has the Reserve Bank uh, moved in the right direction with the announcement last week about quantitative easing and putting money into the system a little bit like, well, on a miniature scale of what the U.S. Fed is doing? Yes. Yeah. So moving in the right direction. But I think what we found, you know, again, with, with 10 years ago, was it was going to take a little while to trickle down. Since we're starting at the bottom here, since we're starting at, you know, the basic, you know, spaza shops or in case of Stauffenberg, Place where you get your biltong, your meat, the, the meat that's on the shelves at, at spar stores, at click stores. Um, you need to, you need to act quickly, and that is you know being a little bit more innovative. Uh, some, maybe that means government guaranteeing lines of credit, you know, major invoice discounters getting government guarantees. Um, you need to get that capital into the system, otherwise things will slowly but surely shut down because everybody's getting tight, and when it gets tight, uh, the SMEs are the first ones to be affected. And when there's uncertainty, it's very difficult to, you know, to, to pay your full bill you know, when, when you owe you know, the Stauffenberg some money. And then if Stauffenberg doesn't get money from their customers, it's difficult to then go buy the, the carcasses and the, and the primals as inputs to turn into you know, meat for you to consume on, on your dinner, dinner table tonight. So where does the, where does the problem begin? Uh, in, in, in just use Stauffenberg as an example. Where, mm-hmm. where would it start uh, that would actually create a working capital problem for your business? Sure. So Stoffelberg has been growing 20, 25% month over month over the last two and a half years, right? So that cash that it has been generating is, is not on the balance sheet. It's as part of working capital. It's, you know, paying for the inputs. It's extended to their, to their customers throughout this country. So unfortunately, where it started was one of our primary customers who makes up a third of our revenue. And yes, that's absolutely a risk that, you know, that, that we saw coming, uh, you know, that in 
it's it's a difficult it's a major risk to have such a major customer as part of your percentage of revenue but they've delayed their payments by a week or two they still don't know and where did that start well some of their smaller customers are trying to hold on to cash you know as you, you can understand and that just goes through with the system so as again as i mentioned it's it's kind of from from the bottom up um, you know if if the the payments of our major customers of our, of our wholesale customers are slowing down even if they, they will come, but two weeks, you know, we need to go buy that meat. We need to dry it. We need to we need to ship it out to the to get on the shelves of of spar of, of pick and pay. Um, so so that's where it happens. That's when you know that the, the rotation of the economy starts to to slow down. How do you fix that? And that's that? why we need to act with some quick. Well, with, with with speed. I mean, it's a distribution issue and it's a speed issue, right? It's uh, it's not easy. Uh, and I'm, and again, I, I would say I'm really impressed with the the leadership of President Ramaphosa. And a lot of the ideas in place, but it's it's just happening too slowly. Uh, this is when public and private need to work together. Um, you know, I, I think back to 2009, and that's actually one of the reasons that inspired Rashil Vallab and I to start Setcher Capital. Because capitalism, when done best, can be the, the greatest catalyst for growth and innovation. And you know, finance made some mistakes leading up to 2009, but it also, when you acted quickly, you could fix it. So I think here, what we need is some government guarantees on major lenders. Lower rates, 12-month, cheap credit, done quickly to growing businesses. That's the only way you can get it out there. Mm-hmm. I think the focusing on salaries and rent, yes, that's crucial. But you can just shut down your business um, if, if you have kind of a – or some, some people can. I, I don't want to be dismissive. With some of our portfolio companies, it's been a little bit easier for them to kind of shut down and wait. But if you provide an essential product like Stoffelberg Biltong, like Rush Nutrition, and you want to keep going – you need that working capital to continue flowing throughout the economy. So what role do banks play in all of this? The critical role? Crucial. Mm. I'm sorry? The critical yeah, role? An unfortunate critical role. And the, you know, we have a line of credit with a major bank, and they're working from home, and they're not taking any major meetings. So they can, you know, they're slow to extend us additional credit. Um, so I, I do think a lot of people have been, been caught you know, uh, surprised by this as – the entire world has, which is totally fair. But this is this is where people need to get together, the banks and even, you know, other invoice discounters. Uh, but now is not the time to be, you know, pulling back capital. You know, we need to be extending these lines faster um, and with some confidence. And, and so the banks are crucial. I think the banks could, you know, are big enough to, to come in. And, you know, as we've seen some leadership from, from the major banks do, and then with you know would be helpful to have a guarantee from government that yes we you know is if there's an if there's an invoice uh, that even if it's a small you know if it's not clicks but it's a small distributor in in Cape Town we can guarantee that because we know that the economy economy will get back to moving sooner uh, rather than later I mean that's what we need for like when you ask specifically with Stoffelberg Biltong as we're trying to make sure that we can we can feed thousands of people um, you know on a, on a daily basis. That's what we need. We need uh, the money to come in so we can turn that into more biltong and, and sell it off into, you know, off, off, you know, into, into every, you know, almost, you know, every LSM available um, um, in this country. You know, everybody, everybody likes meat. It's a high protein. You know, game meat is still healthy. Um, and, you know, we have some of the best in the business. And, and, you know, and also we can just turn it into mints. We can, you know, we have those capabilities, having an abattoir, having a, a drying room, having the distribution capabilities. Uh, we just need to make sure that the, the capital is still going through the system so that we can provide uh, these products. Brendan, what about the retailers? There's often criticism that the big guys, pick and pay, uh, checkers and so on, extend or, or, or don't actually pay 
until they've pretty much sold the product that's on their shelves. Is there not a role to be played by them as well? Yeah, absolutely. Just quicker payment terms. Um, I mean, we love working with clicks, but if you look at our cash conversion cycle with clicks, it's over 100 days. You know, by the time we uh, we buy the meat, we make it, we we drop it off the DC, and then that's when you know 60 or 90 days starts starts going on. Uh, you know, right now we so on the on the plus side, I think you know Spar, we have good relationships with them. We've been able to discuss terms with them, you know, pay as quickly as they can, and they've been all right with it. Um, so they, they do play a major role. Um, again, sometimes these organizations, when they are larger, bureaucratic, top-down, it, it's hard to, to ask, hey, can you pay me you know, 10 days sooner than you'd expect it? Or can, you, you know, can we not do the, the back-end payment terms at this point? Let, let's just fo- focus on getting the shelves full. Um, so they, they absolutely have a role to play. Um, but I think that's even a level up. It's going to be the, you know, the bulk breakers that buy from a macro and bring to a spaza shop. You know, the, uh, that's where I think it's going to start. So it'll be, you know, our 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 distribution uh, customer. You know, the the people that run the trucks from here to Cape Town. They're they're going to be the first ones to say, ah, you know, we need payment up front, uh, and that'll that'll cycle through the system. Um, so it really is, you know, I think you're right to talk about the major retailers. They have a role to play, but it, this is a bottom up solution, and, and it's getting it to the SMEs as as quickly as possible. Because then I tr- then I trust them. I mean, these are entrepreneurs these are traders they they know what to do with their working capital this is not going to go anywhere but for keeping the keeping the wheels in motion but how do you physically get it there and i I ask this because Mm -hmm. surely if there were a compact amongst the retailers instead of paying 100 days they pay everything 15 days uh, because Mm -hmm. it is a crisis that would uh, put a lot of uh, cash into the system and they themselves can be supported Mm -hmm. in that perhaps by the banks who would extend facilities for them uh, so it would be more of a top up because to get the, the the cash into the hands of the of smaller businesses the other way around sounds like it's going to be quite a challenge. I agree. So I think that that that's a fa- fantastic top down solution. I think the other one is is invoice discounting, is is credit lines, is you know lines of credit done quickly, guaranteed for twelve months uh, that are that are cheaper and and you know these businesses already have them. You know I'm talking about the, the more formal you know that are doing. You know, anywhere from five to fifty million rand a year. Um, the informal markets—I don't have a solution for that, unfortunately, um, and that's not where we play. Uh, so I don't have the expertise uh, either. Though I think you know, no less important, if not even more so. Um, but yes, it, I think any kind of uh, major corporate that can pay up front, that can tighten that that cash conversion cycle—that'll uh, that will keep this economy going. You know, keep our supply chain secure and keep our shelves full. And perhaps that's the answer that should be discussed in this um, public-private partnership. Just get the big guys to start paying their accounts sooner, and it'll make sure that the credit doesn't freeze in the way that it has. That was Brendan Mullen, and he is with Setcher Capital.